Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Where does understanding come from? How do we take information from the world and turn it into something we can use? Are we more effective when we sit in silence as we think through a problem, or do we need to roll up our sleeves and more literally get our hands dirty? This is what we're going to discuss in part two of my conversation with Carl Fast, information futurist, former professor of user experience design, and co-author of Figure It Out, Getting from Information to Understanding. We will explore the concept of epistemic actions and provide some answers to how we use our bodies and physical environment to aid in cognition and understanding. Here's our conversation. We can do things now that we kind of take for granted that are relatively easy to do, that are relatively efficient, that 10, 15, 20 years ago would have been very difficult, very time consuming, very expensive, and in some cases, just flat out impossible. And so that always raises the stake. That always means that we're opening up new possibilities. Let's take an example. There are, and have been for quite some time, thin, flexible silicon displays. For quite a few years in the lab, I've seen this at least seven or eight years ago, where you could have an LCD screen that you can sit there and you can flex. You could play like a video on YouTube. You could take it and you could sit there and flex it. It's thin as a sheet of paper. You can pound it with a hammer. You can roll it all up. Now, what happens eventually when we have those kinds of technologies where you can create not just one of those to make, say, like a folding phone, but you could buy like a ream of them the way you would buy a ream of paper. And every single one has got enough power to run for years. Every single one automatically connects to a Wi-Fi network. Every single one of them, not only that, has positioning elements for within a room so that you could, say, put 10 of them in a stack. And the one on top would know about the nine underneath it and would know the information content in each of them. And you could pick them up and you could move them around and sort them on a table or pin them to a wall. In other words, you could treat them very much the way we treat paper today. You could scribble on them with a pen, right? But you would have also all of these computational abilities. How do we get to that, not technologically, but how do we, as people who are building on the technology to create information products and services and experiences for people, how do we grapple with that? Do we have the conceptual toolkit, the language, to talk about the ways that people interact with information in that way? Because in many ways, that would be so much more powerful than the tools that we have today. And like, this is not something that, from a futurist perspective, is hard to predict. When is difficult, right? But that technology will eventually be here. I'm interested in how we go about preparing ourselves so that when that technology is there, we're working with it with an understanding of how mind and body and world work together that goes beyond the way we think of it now. If I can, I'd just like to step back to that chess example. That chess example actually comes from a paper called on distinguishing epistemic from pragmatic action and in that particular paper what they did was they examined how people play tetris so tetris is you know one of the most popular video games of all time very simple you have pieces that come down from the top and you need to fit them into the bottom but there's only four things that you can do you can take a piece and move it left you can move it right you can rotate it in 90 degree increments and only rotate it clockwise or you can drop it into position. And the question they asked in that paper was, 
how do people become better Tetris players? And so in traditional cognitive science theory, what happens is, well, let's suppose you move the piece three spaces to the left, and, you, and then you move it one space back to the right, and then you drop it down into position. That would mean that you've done three left plus one right plus one down, that's five actions. But the optimal way to do it would have been two left and one down. And the difference between three and five is pretty significant. And traditional cognitive science theory, which is the mainstream cognitive science theory, says that you would perceive the state of those shapes, what the shape is and this position. You would look at the puzzle pieces on the bottom of the screen, and you would then think in your head, and then you would plan out your actions, and you would move it two left and one down. And if you did something more than that, it would be a mistake. And that as you get better, you would reduce the number of steps. You would become more optimal. You would become more efficient. And so then when they studied people and watched them play Tetris, what they found was that not all of the time, but in many situations, people actually made more moves than they needed to. So for example, one of the things that they would do is when the piece comes down the top of the screen, it doesn't appear all at once. You get the first little bit of the piece and then you get the next little bit of the piece. But rather than wait for it, people would start rotating the piece right away before they could even see all of it. And because rotating the piece would expose different parts of it, that gave them a clue as to what that shape was. Or what they would do is, you know, moving something over so it's not quite at the left side, but a little bit away from the left side of the screen. You would move it all the way to the left side and then count back two and then drop it into position so that you knew you were getting into the right space. It turned out that people deliberately made a lot of extra moves because this was better. It wasn't efficient in terms of the number of actions, but it made them better players. In fact, the better players, the most skilled ones, the most experienced ones, they all did over rotations. They all did movements extra left and right. In some cases, they did it a lot. And so the people who did the study were like, this makes no sense at all from the perspective of the way we normally think about interaction. So they tried to come up with an explanation and they made a distinction between two major classes of action. One is what they called pragmatic, like we talked about before. The idea of pragmatic action is you change the world for the purpose of changing the world. The example I like to give is taking a drink of water. If you pick up that glass of water and you pour it all over yourself, that is a mistake. Clearly, right? You have not achieved the desired goal state of having water go into your mouth and down your throat and quench your thirst. So any action that doesn't get you there leads you away from this desired goal state of the world of being less thirsty. But they argued that there was at least a second category of action, what they called epistemic action. Epistemic as in from epistemology, as in knowledge and how we know things. And these are actions that we take in the world to make mental computation simpler or faster or more reliable, to reduce the chances of making a mistake. That's what you did with the chess player. When you move the bishop, it's not a mistake because it helps you see the world and see new possibilities. This insight is, I think, very profound. For myself, when I read this, it completely changed the way that I began to look at what people do, how they move their bodies, how they use things in the world, and why they would do that. And so that sort of has put me down, in some sense, this path of information futurism. You've exposed me to these concepts early on in like the kind of the way that I've been kind of a 
approaching user experience design in some of my own personal work too. But this idea of the body being an inextricably linked part of cognitive processing, that motion and senses, and we're really taking in so much more than what I think people on the surface believe goes into it. We're not just sitting there and thinking, and that's how we come up with it. I think one of the examples in the book, people were asked to, I think, count something, and they were asked to keep their hands down to their side and count. And the people who even just slightly nodded as they were accounting, were far more accurate and quicker to get to that answer. So one of the examples that we give in one chapter is counting a series of coins. I think this might be the example. I've done this in uh, talks and in workshops, and I'll, I'll throw a, an image of a series of coins up onto the screen, and I'll say, all right, I'd like you to count all of these coins and tell me how much money there is. And very naturally in that situation, people can't actually count the coins by pointing at them, but that is what you want to do. And there is a study where people did this. They gave people a, a sheet of coins and another example where they gave people actual coins themselves, divide them up into two groups. And the one group is given the instruction, just add up all the coins. And the second group is given the same instruction with one caveat, you have to sit on your hands, right? And so the first group, they don't even think about it. They just naturally take their hands, pick them out and start moving things around because rearranging is an incredibly powerful way to work with and make sense of the information that's in front of us. People used a bunch of different strategies. Maybe they would count them and they would talk aloud. Maybe they would put them into groups of, say, 50 cents or a dollar and then add them all up. The group that had to sit on their hands, though, they really struggled to do this. They struggled so much that what they would do is often they would move their body and nod as they were counting along. They would talk aloud. So again, they're trying to find ways to use their body to bring that into the problem solving. It's never a case where people just sit back and look. Because this is the problem that we have right now. And this is where the history of user experience design or design in general a lot of, especially when it comes to digital products and services, traces itself to work in human-computer interaction. And human-computer interaction through starting to say the late 1970s through the mid-1990s, that work comes out of two basic areas of people. One is people coming out of computer science, obviously, but also a lot of people coming from cognitive science. And the idea of cognitive science at that time, and still is the dominant idea, has a very simple way of thinking about the mind. We perceive information. That information comes in through our eyes, through our sense of touch. We hear things. Information goes into the brain. The brain then does all of the work. And we have sort of tied this idea of brain and mind together. They're the same basic thing. And then what happens is after we've done our thinking, then we go and we act. Thinking is in this middle zone, and that's the really interesting part. Perception is input. Action is output. But there's this whole world that's sort of come up in the years since then, starting again around that period in the late 80s to mid 90s of what we now call embodiment. It goes by a lot of different names in the academic and the scientific literature. You'll hear about things called distributed cognition, activity theory, dynamical systems theory, ecological psychology. And all of them, though, have a same basic idea. We are making a huge mistake by ignoring the way, the role of the body in how we interact with the world around us. And I think that people in the design community 
need to become aware of this because we are making a similar mistake, right? Because we are ignoring so much of what our bodies can do for us and how incredibly important it is for how we think and use information. And this hasn't been a huge problem because our technologies have been so limited. Take that example of all of those sheets of digital paper. We know that that kind of thing is going to be here eventually. I don't know when, but we're on the path to that. We've got augmented reality and virtual reality. We've got wearable devices. We're going to have sensors like crazy everywhere, right? That can respond and detect. Cameras can monitor our body movements and then can respond to different kinds of gestures. We need to begin rethinking some of our assumptions about not so much how the mind works, but as how much do we need to depend just on what the brain does versus all of the other parts that go into our cognitive apparatus. We've really discounted this, I think, for the longest point. Here's a little example that I sometimes like. I remember a study that was done. It was a study with um, people on a diet plan, and they needed to measure out certain kinds of ingredients. So they gave people some cottage cheese, and they were given two-thirds of a cup of cottage cheese, and they were told the recipe calls for three-quarters of that. How much is that going to be? Think about that. If you remember fractions from grade school and are not totally terrified of them the way most people are, two-thirds times three-quarters, you can take out the threes, they cancel, that leaves you with two over four, which leads to one-half. So in terms of symbolic manipulation, it's not very difficult. It's actually really easy. But one person did something very fascinating. He took the two-thirds of a cup of cheese and he poured it out onto the table and he patted it down into a flat circle. And then he cut out one quarter of the circle and just got rid of it and kept the rest. Three quarters of two-thirds of a cup of cottage cheese. And so he used the world as a resource rather than doing that symbol, symbolic manipulation. We do these kinds of things all the time. Just thinking of that, and I actually wrote a note down because as you were talking, going back to that, the flexible sheets of OLED or, or LED screens, the future may look like that. It may look like enhancing the physical environment with this technology in ways that we're not really thinking of because we're kind of anchored in this screens everywhere. Everything's going to be a screen. When we start looking at what else can we outsource, to me, that example in itself, there's so much power in that technology, but there's so much more power if you take the body into account for it because it's like supercharging your ability to stack, sort, manipulate, do things with this new medium that is more than just the calculations or whatever that technology is doing on that screen itself. Yeah, the technologist, uh, Brett Victor, he um, worked on the iPad, uh, did a lot of the early prototype work, and he has been a thinker and writer about this for a long time. He has a place that he works on out in San Francisco called Dynamic Land, where they're building rooms, physical spaces, where you manipulate basically pieces of paper with special kinds of encoding on them, and you do programming in physical space. He points out that we have narrowly defined knowledge work or information work. We've defined it as making tiny little motions with our hand on rectangles. You take a pen and you make some squiggles on a piece of paper, right? You take out a computer and you 
take little motions of your hand on the keyboard, right, to type on the screen. You take out your, you know, your fancy iPad Pro, and you're doing the same thing. You're making tiny little motions with our hands on rectangles. And we have decided that that constitutes knowledge work and nothing else, which ignores like all of human evolution and all of our, our history. Right? It ignores so much of the world that we live in every day and the possibilities of that. You know, we're, I think that we're headed eventually to kind of an interesting inversion in the world of computers. The first computers were rooms. Eventually, our future computers will also be rooms. It's just that instead of having like a big, huge box, we're going to have many, many computational devices, many different kinds of sensors, many different kinds of things. The whole room is going to be a computational device, which reacts and responds to and partners with the human being or beings, right? The people in the room and the information in the room. And we can think of that entire system as a cognitive system, as a tool for thought not just a device. We have this idea of something that we can hold in our hand that or sits in our desk or that goes into our pocket. That's a computing device, right? That's a tool for thinking. But what happens if that's just one of many things? And really the unit of analysis that we should be looking at here is the room itself and everything in it and how it all coordinates and works together. Right now, my concern here, the reason I'm calling myself more of an information futurist is because I'm interested in how do we get there. Not how do we get there technically? How do we get there conceptually? How do we get there so that we can see that? I think this is roughly analogous to the transition, the inflection points that design has gone through. For a long time, design was fundamentally focused on artifacts. It was the thing. Right? So if you were an industrial designer, you focused on like the object, the furniture, the toaster, whatever it was. If you were a graphic designer, you focused on like the type on the page, on the print, on the poster. Right? If you were a fashion designer, you focused on clothes. If you're an architect, you focus on right, the building. The artifact was always at the center of design. And what we've seen with the transition to digital and the rise of user experience has been this idea of human-centered design or user-centered design. We need to shift the focus. We shift it towards what people are doing. And that, that transition, that inflection point required us to come up with a new vocabulary, new concepts, a new way of seeing something that was always right there, but we just didn't know how to talk about it. And we didn't prioritize it. And so... That is what we have gone through over the last, well, let's say 25, 30 years, depending on how you want to date it, maybe a little longer, right? There's stuff that goes back to the mid, early 80s for sure. We're going to be coming up to a new transition. And that transition is going to be shaped by more and more information in the world, new kinds of technologies, more interactive types of systems, where what we have right now is going to look increasingly primitive. But what's also going to look primitive is the conceptual toolkit that we have, our perspective on these problems. That's what I'm grappling towards. And this book tries to deal a lot with that, right? To start that conversation in a meaningful way, to give people a wide range of uh, lenses onto that and ways of talking about it. What do you see the future designer looking like? How do we start to take those steps forward towards that? 
someone who's bought into that, not going from the object or the thing being the center mm -hmm. of the universe, but the, the person in the context. Well, I don't know that I have or anyone has an answer for it. I haven't thought very deeply about it, but I do know that we have a problem. <laughs> The problem is, is that in some respects, I think design is, a, is something of a victim of its own success. The success is that most designers now work in large corporations and large organizations where they're making products and services that meet the needs of today. There isn't a lot of space to do that. You're driven and shaped much more by the market forces, by the need to service the existing products and services, right? by the realities today. I think that people will need to make a very conscious effort to think about these kinds of problems. I think we're going to get some work, say, from outside groups and outside agencies because they have a different kind of freedom to push these. I'm hoping that we get more stuff from independent people like myself, right, who are trying to think about these and go in a different kind of direction. I think a lot of the pieces are out there. I don't think that we've seen all the patterns. I don't think we've created the language for it. I don't believe in the idea that we need a lot of new science. I think a lot of the science is probably already there, but it always takes a long time for the science to become part of our conversation. You know, you take someone like Don Norman and the design of everyday things. He wrote that book in the mid 1980s. And it is, I like to joke, the one book in design that, that was published before 1990 or even before say 2000, that pretty much everyone in the design world should have read or feel guilty about having not read. Because so much of the concepts in that book, that pretty much everything is still relevant today and will continue to be relevant. But he wrote that book building out, you know, drawing from and synthesizing the various principles from cognitive science that had been found and developed and studied over the previous 15 or 20 years. It takes time for those ideas, right, for that science to be synthesized into something that is useful for people who are not doing science. And so I think in a similar way, we're going to need people to do this kind of synthesis work, to find these patterns, to try to communicate these patterns, to work through these and begin to apply them to real world problems. We all need to begin collectively opening our eyes to this as a perspective and thinking about some of our internal assumptions and how else we might describe it and why we might do this, rather than thinking design is a mature discipline. I think it has been a maturing discipline for sure, but it's been a maturing discipline in terms of how do we get a seat at the table in organizations? How do we meet the needs of organizations, right? How do we grow the profession there? It has not been a maturing thing in terms of like, how do we evolve to a new level? How do we evolve into something different that creates new kinds of value and can uh, take new advantage of the world that we live in, the technologies that are coming? I've thought about it a lot, like thinking like, what, what is that next step? for me, like, what can I do in my position? I'm in one of those outside kind of consultant roles and we do have some, some different freedoms and people do bring us in on some further out type work, but it's just a, how do we ingrain this type of thinking? And I think at least for listeners, a good primer is the way the book is presented and how the stories are told and the concepts are presented, I think is a really good way to get your head thinking in that direction. It's pretty heady concepts. It's pretty deep conceptually. 
I, I just think that there's things that we can do if we just start to think in these ways. There's little ways to incrementally go into it. I agree. I I can't think of any way to like take a leap forward. Let me give a maybe what what I hope will be a practical example for someone who is interested in picking up the book. Yep. The book is sort of divided up into there's a beginning part which sort of lays out our, the basic premise, talks about this idea of embodied cognition, the value of interaction, bodies, etc. Then there's four major parts to the book that go through associations, external representations, interaction, which we have talked about in this podcast specifically. And then there's a section on what's called coordination, which is how does one take all the different kinds of resources out in the world and stitch them together into a larger, more coherent system? How do you, right? And in each of these sections, we talk about the different kinds of science, and we also try to provide concepts and frameworks that one can use to think about things, to see the world and describe it in these kinds of ways. So for people who are listening to this conversation here, where we've talked about interaction, we've talked about epistemic and pragmatic action, the practical step that you could take if you felt this would be interesting to you would be to read the section on interactions. And one of the chapters goes through and describes different epistemic actions. I go and I break down four different major categories of epistemic actions. And within that, I identify, I think it's something like 15 individual epistemic actions. What you can do then is rather than just read it or rather than read it and say, take some notes, you can maybe use those and say, okay, I'm going to go out to my workplace. Well, maybe you can't because you're working from home with COVID and everything, but you can use that in almost every part of your life. You could look at that as a way to say, what is really going on there? You go and you sit at your desk or you're in a room meeting with different people. What are people doing here? Can I use this vocabulary of 15 terms to begin to break down, not perfectly, not everything, but to describe what people are doing and why they're doing it? So the the book has sort of a dual element here. On the one hand, we want to give people the evidence. We want to give people some of the science. We want to talk about the different studies to persuade you that this is a useful way of looking at things. But in each of the different sections, we also try to give you some tools that you can use so that you can take those steps of starting to actually see the world in a new way. I went through that framework and thought through an old project and just started picking things out that steps in some of the experiences that I was mapping out to kind of look and see where certain elements of those interactions were falling within the framework. And it was really interesting. And also looking at that, I think you called it a pattern language, just to look at that as a way to, in my case, almost like a a card. How might we in this interaction use this to apply something new to a design? So using filtering, using probing, these different things within the framework. Yes, and use those not just to describe what people are doing on a screen, but to do things that people are doing away from screens, away from the little rectangles that define and shape so much of our life. It was funny, I I mapped it out. Some of my shopper research, going through those interactions, if it was a screen sitting at home, and going through those interactions if you're walking through the aisles at the store. And a lot of those interactions are the same, but then once you figure out that they start to not support each other. So in the one case, uh, I, I think I shared with this with you in the past, but I was watching people in an herb aisle, you know, like someone shopping for herbs. I could go through that whole process of someone on a website shopping for dried basil and putting it into their cart and checking out. But what I saw in the aisle was like 80% of the people were 
whether consciously or subconsciously, shaking those herbs next to their ear, like next to their head. And I probed and found out it was because they were checking for freshness. So how do you emulate that on the flat screen side when people are learning through doing in the aisle that, that is not an easy way to, to emulate that on, on digital? And I would call that an example of probing. That's a way what they're doing. That's a particular epistemic interaction where what you're doing is you're looking for more information. You have some information in front of you. You've got the particular, you've got the herb, but you're doing something to gain more, to go a level deeper, to get more, to pick away at that. And there are so many different cases in which people do that. It takes so many different forms. I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Uh, it's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for coming back for uh, this season and good luck with your future. And I, I expect nothing but great work coming out as information futures. I want to see how that evolves and takes off. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. That's it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating or a review, we'd love to hear what you think. You can follow us on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. You can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A very special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, our audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. Right. <laughs> This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.